Welcome to this week's podcast from Suncoast Church. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. We hope you enjoy this message. Hey, how's it going? And how's the rest of you? You're good too. What um, interesting times we live in, hey. Um, and, you know, you could say that like at any given year, but 2020, I feel like is really the year to say that phrase. What a time to live in. Um, and I, you know, something that, you know, it's kind of interesting, like we've um, had this period of time, like as a church and probably every church, you know, almost in the world that was like not at the building, like we were meeting online and, you know, it's a funny kind of thing because, you know, I'm, um, I, like I'm, I'm a teaching pastor at this church, but like I, I, I work elsewhere and for many people, like through that time, it was still like kind of nice, wasn't it? Like everyone was like, there was a lot of like, you know, negativity around that time. But like on a Sunday morning, sometimes like not going to church was great. And, but what do you do with that thought? I mean, you can't really think that. I mean, that's a terrible, like I feel guilty about enjoying my Sunday morning. You can't, you can't think that. But it was, right? Like for many people. And we come back here now and we're like, what do I do with this little thought in the back of my head that it was kind of nice not to go to church, you know? It was just me. Everyone else was hating life and just wishing that they were back in the building. I won't ask for a show of hands. I, but look, I'm going to talk an undivided, but I thought I should just like, because I've thought about this a bit. I've had to, often the things that, think, that pop in the back of my head, I just have to think about it for a bit. And I just, I think I should make, I, I want to make two observations, if you'll allow me, um, which you, you will, because I'm holding the microphone. Um, observation number one. Um, for, for many, many people, I think what was really nice was that Sunday morning for, for all of us is kind of this protected chunk of time. And it sort of gets blocked out for church, like by and large, like culturally, you within your circle perhaps have had a habit for many, many years as a family to block out that time. And it's rare that people are organizing parties and breakfast and things on a Sunday morning. Sometimes it happens, but generally it's blocked out and protected. And it's almost like we sort of cheated and got this free piece of time. And I was like, oh my goodness, wow, Sunday morning, I've just got this free chunk and it was awesome. And I got to rest and there were no demands on me and I was, I was free to do what I want. I could, you know, sleep in or if you have kids, that's not a thing. Um, but, you know, even with kids, you know, I had this free chunk. And first observation is um, that if you felt that way, if you felt you bought back this piece of time that was replenishing to you, it may be a good warning that you need protected rest time, that you need that. And the Bible actually calls that Sabbath. The Bible, God actually commanded His people to have a day of rest. That's observation number one. Take what you want out of that. Observation number two is just that when it comes to thinking about our coming to church on a Sunday and what it means to like gather uh, it's important that like, one, like the, the real primary consideration for church attendance is not actually whether or not I myself have my personal needs met. It's 
actually coming to church is actually an act of worship to God and obedience to God and to blessing for other people. Now, now out of that, like in a backwards way, you end up getting a lot of your personal fulfillment, inspiration, encouragement. You connect with your creator in heaven, but it's not the primary thing. The primary thing is obedience to God. Because when we flip that around, and if we as um, church attendees or the people who are, say, running a church or pastors begin to flip that around and church becomes about my needs, it's a very quick race to the bottom where church should be a place that impresses me. And I come and I see the, I come into the car park, I'm like, oh, I don't know about this. Oh, this worship, I don't really like this song. It's not sounding very good. This message isn't like, you know, and, and everything, we become critical. And then what happens is the people up, up here or running it or out there, you know, whoever's serving starts to do it to impress people. And we, we, we gather in this, this race down to the bottom here where we're trying to impress each other. Um, and it's not a good, good way to have church. And so as, as you think about church, this is the yearly reminder that we should all have, which is that, you know, church first and, first and foremost is, is an act of worship to God. It's my worship. It could even be sacrifice. On the mornings you don't want to come or you come and worship, you may not enjoy the worship time. You may not enjoy raising your hands, perhaps, if that's what you do, or singing. Um, but it's, an, it's a sweet sound to God. Something that, that he enjoys. Now, and I, okay, so I've started in a pretty heavy place right now with this message, but I just, I wanted to make those couple of observations because um, it's important that we understand why we do church, and it's important to understand that perhaps you had a time of rest, and you may need to look at your life and, and sectioning off protected time to have rest. As I said, the Bible would call that Sabbath, but you may need to find it. Is that cool? Judging by the silence, it is cool. Let me just see if I can get my iPad to unlock now. Um, so now, okay, I'm going to speak about undivided. So that's the topic, uh, undivided. I, I really do believe, and, and you probably uh, agree with me, that we, we live in a, a divided world. I don't think it's necessarily anything new that the world divides, but it does seem like um, perhaps more than ever, every thing that comes up in the news, every political or social movement or phenomenon that we see is a reason for people to divide, that we find excuses to divide everything from, you know, we could find ways to divide around the bushfires, ways to divide around COVID, um, around refugees, around every election. Um, I look at what happens in North America because often they're like this, you know, they say America, they, they, they cough and the rest of the world catches a cold, but you, um, you, you watch how elect, the elections take place over there and how divisive it is and how much that's rolled out into Brexit in the UK, into our political elections. Um, and, and like I said, every issue that comes up um, it's simple to see that we are finding reasons now more than ever to fracture, and that fracturing and that division is becoming increasingly hostile. Now, it's not only around you know, political or social issues. Like Many of us experience division in relationships and in, in family and in people around us, but we do live in, in certainly a divided world. But, and I would actually say that it is um, not a new thing, but it is getting worse, right? So let me... Um, let me just quote, you know, and, and, unless you think that's just a feeling, like you think we feel it's getting worse. Now, let me demonstrate through, you know, through, like there are three pieces of, I'm only going to quote three pieces of research. Research number, piece number one is in the US, um, but I think could be said to here. It can be demonstrated that feelings of warmth towards an opposing political party have steadily declined from the 1950s and 60s to now to be an all-time low. Right, we are becoming uh, more and more critical and cynical about the 
other side, let's say, whether, you know, and that's politically, you might be conservative or you might be, you know, liberal or progressive or something, but the feelings are going down. Secondly, urban versus rural divide. Uh, it used to be the case that um, people in urban or rural areas used to have a sort of a, you know, a, a general split down the middle of people who lived in those areas in terms of how they voted and whether they were conservative or progressive. But since the 50s and 60s, urban areas are becoming increasingly, increasingly more liberal and rural areas are becoming more and more conservative, right? So there's a clear now a geographical divide that since the 50s and 60s is only getting uh, uh, more divided. And then lastly... Um, political parties to the left and the right, you could actually say, are becoming more and more, once again, since the 50s, becoming more and more to the left and more and more um, to the right. So, in many ways, the divide is getting deeper. The divisions in our world are becoming more hostile, and every issue that arises seems to be a, a reason to create more and more division. So, you know, and, and, and think about it, right? If, if I were like, um, if I were a military strategist, which I'm, I could be, I think I'd be a good one. No, I'm kidding, I'd be terrible. Wouldn't I, Pete? You're the only military guy I know. Um, I, would, I would think, and, and this, I mean, I, mean, I actually know that this is actually true, that one of the best ways to conquer an, an opposing army is actually to d- divide them. This is why propaganda through like the, the um, through like all the 1900s all the way to now propaganda has become such an embraced idea because propaganda finds a way to take a group of people and begin to divide them all the way through the Cold War. It was probably the greatest military tactic, which was to actually try for the for the Americans, for the people in the U.S. to get the Russians and the Russian population to start poking holes in communism and for the Russians to look at America and start poking holes in capitalism, right? So that they could divide those populations because you see division robs us of our ability to work together. Division is extremely damaging. It robs us of our ability to have peace together, robs us of our ability to have joy together, and it robs us of our ability to work together. If you want to weaken or fracture a family, a church, a sports club, um, a school, an organization, a university, if you want to damage that group, the best way to do it is to divide them. Start by dividing. So what do we do? Series undivided. How, how do we bring healing? How do we bring unity? How do we restore division? How do we stop from fracturing even in the first place? And, um, you know, l- lest you think this is just a, you know, about political and social issues, I think a big part of it is, because that is a, an enormous factor today in a way that we do divide, especially online. Um, I, I think, you know, we need to think about this in terms of our relationships as well, families and people that you connect with and maybe have divided from. So I don't want to just say this is purely a social political thing. This is also a relational idea as well, but division being such a powerful mode for destruction, how can we restore it and how can we avoid it? And there are probably two questions that I I think I'd like to look at this morning, because you could look at this in any ways, but the two would be, number one, how do we bridge divides within the kingdom, within, and when the kingdom, what do I mean by that? I mean in the, the church, within churches and within cr- the Christian group of people. How do we bridge divides? Because they are clearly happening. 
It's, it's clear within the church that people are, are fracturing and causing churches to divide and people and parents and children to divide because of their ideas. And then secondly, but how do we also heal divides with those outside? I mean, we saw this with the, um, the same-sex marriage vote. Cleared just a, whoa, man, what a chasm that formed. And what a moment for people to do what? Throw rocks at each other. <laughs> You know, like anything but healing divide. You know, I, you know in some ways, I'm, I'm glad the church and the Australia right now is not in a moment focused around a divisive issue like that. Like COVID could be that, but I don't think it's in the same way um, that it happened then. But how do we do these things? If division is clear, if division is getting worse, if division is destructive, how do we bridge divides in the kingdom? How do we heal um, divides with those outside? And what I want to do, like, do you, are you, would you like to know the answer to this? Well, I'm sorry. I don't know. I'll, I'll do my best. Um, I'll do my best to, like, have a think about this because it's, it's a good thing. This is why we're doing Undivided because we want to understand how to avoid division, how to heal division. Um, and what I want to do is I want to go to a, a story in the Bible. So if you were, does anyone still, like, I ask this question once a year, who still brings a book of a Bible, like a paper hardback. So who brings a Bible to church? Can you wave it at me like a good Baptist? You know, yes, wave, yep, let's see them. This is awesome. You, yeah, clap for those, yeah, for those people who still do it. I'll be honest, I'm preaching this morning and I didn't bring one. Isn't that terrible? <laughs> there is a story I'd love to tell. Um, it comes from the seventh chapter of Luke. So if you have a paper Bible or even a phone, you could go there as well. And I'm going to read the NIV version of it to you. And it comes from the 36th verse of Luke chapter 7. Story of two lost people. And um, if you don't have either of those, you can listen to me read through this. It's actually relatively long. It's like 10 or 12 verses, which I know for a Pentecostal church is a lot of verses to read in one time. Um, and it's well beyond my attention span normally to, um, to read, but I'm going to give it a shot. Um, but please picture this setting. See the setting up here? This is probably one of the, the paintings I found that is on the historically accurate end of what you would be observing if you were in the picture I'm about to read to you right now. So remember, I'm talking about division, healing division, but this is the story. I'm going to look at how Jesus heals division. Okay, verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited... Wait, let's stop there. A Pharisee, if you're not familiar with that term, not everyone is, a Pharisee at the time of Jesus was like a religious person. They were deeply religious and very, uh, you know, law-focused with their devotion and often a very hypocritical group at that time, didn't particularly like Jesus, he was too radical for them. Um, But remember, Pharisee, think like ultra-Orthodox religious kind of Jewish person. So, um, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house And reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know that the one who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him and said, Simon, so obviously this Pharisee, his name is Simon, says, Simon, something to tell you. 
Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, right, which is like a currency. So let's just say $500 just to simplify this. $500 and the other 50. Neither of them had money to pay him back. And so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which one will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said, in what I can imagine a very patronizing voice. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, you see this woman? I came into your house and you didn't give me water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. It's gross. Um, You did not put oil on my head, but she poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, her many sins, which have been forgiven as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven a little loves a little. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Cool. Beautiful story. Hey, really a stunning picture. Uh, and it is, um, you know, for those who you know, read the Bible a bit, this is a, a different telling. There are three other tellings of a similar story, um, you know, where a woman washes the feet of Jesus in, in Matthew, Mark, and John, which are separate to this story. This is an isolated one and the only instance we see of this particular story. So a religious leader of the time uh, is having dinner, invites Jesus to his house for dinner. And let's just get some of the cultural context right here. This is how they would have been meeting. Like they actually recline at a table. And what you do, you're not on a chair, you're reclining. And what would happen is you would, as you recline, you lean back and you tuck your feet away from the table behind you. Uh, Why would you do that? Uh, Because at a time when people got most of the places they were going by walking, in sandals, in roads shared by donkeys and sheep and whatever other animal that is defecating on the road, feet were gross, right? Feet were much more, you know, feet are bad now, right? But feet back then uh, were were worse. People were not wearing shoes, they were disgusting. So it was customary upon entering someone's house, and especially if you're going to sit down for dinner on your feet with them around, um, that you'd wash them first. So obviously, this pretty rude, arrogant religious leader Um, not a nice guy at all by the seams of things, hasn't given Jesus the ability to wash his feet, Um, hasn't given him a kiss on entry, which is not a COVID-safe thing to do, but back then they didn't care about that, Um, and and, and lets this woman, uh, and and then all of a sudden this woman appears. Like, it's probably not that uncommon. Like, often um, these, these dinners could be put on for a bit of a show, like the religious man, hey, look, I've got this radical teacher, Jesus, who's been doing miracles and, you know, in Jerusalem and so on. He's come to my house for dinner and put a bit of a show on. And some of the poor people would gather, hopefully maybe to try and get some food scraps or watch what was happening. And then this woman appears, and she is crying, right? How awkward, right? This woman just starts coming and she's crying, um, as you're having dinner, and everyone turns around and goes like, oh, okay, what's, what's happening here? Um, and the Bible says something that helps us to understand a bit more about this woman. It says she has an alabaster jar, which is kind of like a porous, long-necked jar, um, full of like a fragrant perfume, uh, like a nard kind of substance. Now, if we read between the lines, uh, it's most likely, like what that was seen as an alabaster jar of perfume was actually a tool of the trade for a prostitute in the Middle East, like to smell, you know, you could put all the rest together. Um, But we have a pretty good sense that this woman's a prostitute. She has this jar um, 
And, and then think about the symbolism of the story. She breaks it. You know, she breaks it. And where does she take it? She breaks it and takes it to the feet of Jesus. Now, like, I'm, I'm not going to circle around that part of the story, but I encourage you, please read through the story a bit more and think about that. It's a great, great thing to think about um, in the story. And Jesus ends up uh, giving a lesson to the religious man, um, and he, this woman sees healing. Her soul is healed. She's restored. Her sins are forgiven, and she goes with what? Peace. She goes with peace. She's restored. So let me, all I want to do, so we've got the story. I want to just make three points. So it should take us 10, you know, 45 minutes tops to get through these, these, these last points. Um, that are three points about healing division um, and, and what it means to heal division and what we can learn from Jesus from this story and this woman. Number one, make it personal. Everyone say, make it personal. Um, the most common uh, option today that people take when they start to observe people with different beliefs than, than theirs is actually to group that other set of people together and form an enemy out of that group. Right. That's a, it's a pretty extremist thing to do, but people are doing it right now. You observe it, you see it happening, and we're all guilty of it. Right? We're all doing this. Where we take a group of people, oh, it's those bigoted Christians over there and the country folk, or it's those inner city lefty journos, um, you know, it's them, or it's this group of people, or it's that group who oppose me, who do different to me. You know, we group them together and make an enemy out of those people. And you know what? This actually feels really good. You know why it feels really good? Because what it allows you to do is attribute all that's wrong with the world to that enemy group of people and all that's right in the world to me. Like, I. I'm the source of the good. Like, I'm the one who believes in the best for the world, and that enemy is the source of the bad, right? And what it allows me to do is it excuses then my behavior towards that group. I can be rude. I can be nasty. I can be angry. I can be arrogant. I can criticize that enemy group of people. Go back to the same-sex marriage that you know, you saw it, right? You saw it clearly how vitriolic, how adversarial um, the relationship was between clusters of people who grouped themselves together. And, you know, we all have good reason sort of to do that, right? Like, and often, you know, one of the ways this happened can be like, you know, a, a conservative right right-wing leaning kind of person, um, you know, who's he's valuing the, the society holds law and order and holds morals and keeps us a moral society moving forward, uh, while someone who might be more progressive and liberal often are valuing the, the freedom of the individual, um, that we have a flourishing society, that we move forward away from uh, bigoted beliefs. And so because these groups kind of form, it's easy then to attribute that other group as the enemy, and make assumptions about them, uh, and begin to be nasty to them. And we see a lot of this. It does also happen relationally as well. Like you can make an enemy out of another group of people or a person. It can happen on that level too. Um, but I think if you look at what Jesus did here, he had every reason to to group this Pharisee, the, the religious like, clearly didn't like him. And Jesus would have known that going in. Like, all right, I'm getting a show invite. I know I'm being paraded into his house. I know what's going on here. He rocks up, doesn't wash his feet, no, 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 no water, no oil, no kiss, no nothing. Like, I know I'm being manipulated for the sake of this guy. Think about what Jesus could, you know, but what does Jesus do in response to someone that he could have grouped? He goes to his house for dinner. 
that Pharisee was the other lost person in this story. And in some ways, you know, the two questions asked, how do we heal divides within the kingdom? This is a good picture because that Pharisee was like someone else who should be on the same team as Jesus. They should have been on the same team. They were together. And the woman could be a picture of this second one, right? And so what happens with... So, so not only does he take someone that he could have grouped together and say, he's just one of them Pharisees, leave him alone. No way I'm going to that guy's house. Because, you know, I know what's going on. I'm just going to go there. I'm going to be transferred. I'm going to be disrespected. I'm going to leave angry. It's going to be terrible. What does he do? He takes a chance and goes there for dinner. He made it personal. He built a relationship with that man. And then think about the woman, right? Like I, something probably gets lost in this story. Think of it this way. Um, Pastor... Jono, let's say, um, who could be Jesus in this story, let's say, religious person, is that someone, is out at, um, what's a restaurant on the Sunshine Coast people like? What? Hungry Jacks, Hungry Jacks Nambour. Um, just opened, it's a huge deal for Nambour, forging ahead. Jono's out at Hungry Jacks, famous pastor in the area. Um... And he's there having a Bible study, as he would. And a, a like, let's say a stripper, dressed like a stripper, comes up, starts touching Jono's feet or something like that. This is what's happening in the story. She's touching Jesus' feet. It's no better then. That it's actually worse then than it would be today. It's, it's so, imagine how awkward it would be if you were like, oh, this is, compromising, I'm about to, I don't know this person, I swear, I, I don't, I don't know who it is. <laughs> Go away, it's actually ruining this Bible study. Um, everyone at Hungry Jacks, all the staff are going to think I'm, a, anyway. Um, this is what happens to Jesus right now when it was worse than at the time. Because of all the cultural, religious ideals and laws at the time, she would have been considered unclean, like ceremonially, according to their laws, she would have been unclean. And the, the Pharisee even says this, hey, this woman is touching him. Why is she touching? Because the, the touch thing was important, and Jesus allowed her to touch him. He treated her like a person. One of the best things that you can do when it comes to division is to drop the notion to make someone into a group and an enemy and treat them like a person, right? When, when, when you can sustain relationship with someone, when you can entertain relationship, and what, what might that mean for you? It may mean pursuing friendship and relationship with people who are not like you. Find people who have alternate views to you. Find people, find people who would have reasons to divide with you and, and, and build a bridge, build a healing, a, a bridge that there could be healing where you actually relate to that person rather than making an enemy about them. And, and when you and I, when we run into ideals, articles and groups of people who want to like be demonized, or you might even find a news article that is demonizing a group of people, um, just remember on the other side of that issue, on the other side of that, there are real people who either believe that or real people who are suffering because of that issue. Even think about this in the case of like the, the, the back and forth around refugees. There are real families and people who are struggling for their lives. And it doesn't, I'm not saying you need to adopt one view or the other, but refuse. Refuse what our whole world is doing. Refuse the notion that you need to make an enemy out of another group and take it and make it personal.
Okay? Teaching piece number one. That's point number one. I'll keep moving because I'll, I'll, take, I'll take all day here. Make it personal. Point number two. Kindness wins every time. Right? So, um, it's actually, you know, I, I um, research studied, uh, research um, published quite recently in the last couple of years by Jonathan Hyatt, social psychologist from the New York uh, Business School. Um, he, he did a, a bunch of research around people's moral intuitions and moral beliefs, some of the deepest held beliefs that people have. And what he found by asking questions of people, like moral questions that he knew that people um, wouldn't know the answer, have a pre-calculated answer for, he asked them. And what he found was that people would respond to that, and you can map their brain activity, they would respond to that without even thinking rationally, by bypassing the rational portion of that person's brain. What does that mean? He he suggests that many of our deepest held moral intuitions and intuitions about the world are not rational. There's something else. They're so deeply held. Now, the Christian faith, we might, as Christians, like we get to sort of have another dimension, like a spiritual dimension we think about, because we do really believe that, that people are spiritual beings or soul beings, and there's something deeper to you than pure rationality and reason. Right, that there is something deep. The, the Bible even says, you know, they have this famous love. It says, "The fool has said in his heart, there's no God." It doesn't say in his head. The fool has said in his heart, there are there are heart level decisions being made, not always informed by just the heart, but by people's experience. People have deep experiences, and and the reason I bring this up is a lot of the re- the reasons people divide are not because of pure rational thought. Because if it was just that, how would we solve it? By arguing. We could argue and reason together, and eventually we would get to a point of agreement, and they would see my side of the argument, right? That's what would happen, right? But clearly, that's not the case. You and I just know that intuitively, but even, you know, I, I even propose a set of research that suggests that arguing with someone, I mean, have you seen it? Someone's like, oh, finally, I believe God exists because of that great argument that you presented to me. And you argue that comment you left on Facebook about all these reasons, you know, I'm convinced now of your side of the, the view, right? Like it really worked. Um, I watched this stuff over and over again. I, I studied philosophy at university. I just saw the argument and the debates and so on. In, and I, I'm all about it. I'm all about it. But it is only powerful to a certain level. And it's a pretty low level. A kind, a good Christian will bridge a divide far better than a good Christian argument. That your kindness, making it personal, and then in that relationship, being kind, being loving, being caring, will draw someone across a divide far better than your ability to rationalize, to reason, to argue. Um, You know, there's this famous saying, what's the point of giving someone a rose to smell if you cut off their nose in the process? That's often what people are doing with the Christian faith. Arguing, being vitriolic, being adversarial, making an enemy out of another group of people and convincing them that you need to join our side, that there's this us and them narrative that is totally propagated by news and news media because it makes a lot of money, it makes people angry, makes people share and read news articles, which in turn makes money for people. But that narrative and that way of operating is driving the divide. 
It's driving it worse. And how do we heal it? By making it personal, by showing the love of Jesus, by showing love and kindness. Here's a couple of just practical things. Avoid arguments and pursue conversations. That's a good thing to do. If you're going to, um, okay, if you want to, like, I very rarely engage online now. Um, it's just so hard, even with other Christians, right? Because it just, it just goes like that, right? Because it's not personal. That's what online, we become sort of semi-anonymous and we can comment to someone, even if we sort of know them. Um, it's, it's not a good place to do this. Um, in fact, just don't argue on the internet, right? That could be a really good thing to do. Don't, if you want to have a conversation about something, just have a coffee with someone, talk with them, do it with a friend. Very rarely is that the case. But secondly, find points of commonality. Find reasons to agree. You would find with that that person you think of, when you think of the alternate person, you're the enemy, let's say, whoever that person is, or totally different, different views from you, you would find you actually probably agree on 90% of the things that you believe. You would agree on so much more. There are some foundational pieces that you might differ on, but let's say you are full conservative and this other person is just full progressive, if, that, if that's what it was, right? They would agree on so much, so much more than what we're led to believe. You have a lot to agree about. And then within the church, you know, what's sad is we get caught up on these peripheral points, these peripheral things like, um, you know, around sexuality, around behavior, around the expression of the Christian faith, creation and evolution. Like these things are all, they are important, but at the center of the Christian belief is that Jesus Christ came to the earth to forgive us from our sins and and to restore us. That is at the middle. And if you're going to divide over anything, that's, that's where it could happen. I wouldn't be dividing over those other things, not quickly anyway. Find commonality, and within the kingdom, come back to that place. If you can't agree on anything, just agree on that, and we can start from there. Um, The Bible even says this. Paul even writes in Romans, says, don't bring up, um, the start of Romans 14, go and read this. I'd miss this. Like, don't bring up peripheral disputes with new believers. He said that 2,000 years ago. And often we in churches can be like, someone comes in and say, hey, well, all right, we better address this thing that's right on the outside. Rather than say, hey, come to the middle. Come to the thing that we can agree on, right? In, in fact, right, um, this was one of the core scriptures. I'm going to read this. This is in John 17. It says, um, Jesus said, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. All of the believers may be one. One, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we in one. I in them and you in me. So it's talking about the same unity that Jesus has with the Father. He wanted his followers to have together so that they may be brought into complete unity. And get this, this is the most important piece of this. Then the world will know. Then the world will know that you sent me and I have loved them as you love me. What would be the major mark of the Christian group of people? That they could have unity amongst their diversity. That they would find reasons to cohere and to cooperate and bridge divides. It was a mark of the early church that the most disparate group of people who shouldn't get along started to have everything in common. That they could unify despite all of their diversity. The greatest mark of our church should be that someone could come into this, 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 this building or to care or to any of the arms of this church and say, wow, these people are so different, 
and they love each other. These people have every, they could have any reason not to get along. We, we shouldn't, you know, we, not, the aim of this isn't to be like a, a homogenous group of people with identical views. I mean, how boring would that be and how limited would our ability to be an effective cooperative church in this city if we were all exactly the same? It can't be our sameness that unites us. It's got to be our coming to Jesus and knowing that He unites us, right? And this is the mark. This is why people will see the love of God, because we can be united around Him, loving and forgiving one another. Because if someone was to come to the church who was different, which chances are they are, they don't come ready-made with an adopted set of Christian worldview beliefs that are going to fit in nicely, what are they going to think? Like, I have to change everything about myself to fit in with that group. I'm not doing that. Even if I wanted to, I probably couldn't. We can show how inclusive we can be, how we can allow things that would divide people to, to be united in the love of God. Cool. I'm, I'm, I'm taking a long time here. Point number three. Make it personal. Kindness wins every time. And Jesus heals division. I'm just going to drink water right now. Hey, Ken. Just snuck up there like I wouldn't notice. <clears throat> um, you might think uh, that the point of this series um, and the things that myself and Garth and, and Dan have been talking about in the last few weeks um, is that if we could do the things I've been talking about, like, you know, go that extra mile in building relationships with people who I who I might not otherwise be able to build a relationship with. If I could be more kind and more loving and more, more generous, if I could do all of those things and basically be a like this superhuman, perfect, awesome person, if I could do all that stuff, imagine the divides that I could heal, right? And that's the, the thing about that is it's not new. People have been making the make love, not war stickers for, you know, decades now, slapping them all over the back of cars. If we could all love one another, if everyone could just unite, if everyone could just love. And, and we've been, people globally have had a, an idea of that and a consciousness of how important it is to love in order to unite. People have been talking about that for a long time now, a long time. And it's not working. It's not working globally. And then it's not even, I mean, if I just said to, you know, you and I are not that good at this stuff. We're not. And that, I'm not saying that to condemn you. I'm actually saying that to release you from guilt for you thinking like, I could never. I'm trying. I'm really trying to be kind, to stop demonizing people, to build bridges and to heal, you know. But, you know, it's hard. And that's the truth for me and should probably is for you that this is hard hard work to love but it's the only way it is the only way it's true but it's not happening because the, the Christian view on this is not that I would stand up here and create this way for you to live that if you could just live this way that you could bridge the divides in the world that you could heal the world that you could heal yourself that you could heal your relationship with God the reality is and the Christian belief is that you and I are divided from God that the worst division plaguing our earth today is not a division between political parties, but from humanity to God. That that is the division. And that we are divided. But here's this. Let me read this scripture. 
But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The, the only healing for division has to come from the fact that God looked at earth, the sinful earth divided from him, a sinful people, a sinful you and me, and he sent his son. He came to the earth as Jesus to forgive us, to bridge a divide that you and I never could. In all of our striving and all of our attempting a loving and slapping bumper stickers and pretending we like it, in all of that, we weren't going to do it. But he bridges the divide to us. He forgives us. He restores us. He comes to us. And that if you and I can be undivided with God, that right there is the foundation on which we go out and heal divides in the world. The only way that you and I can go out and love people that are hard to love, that can forgive people that are hard to forgive, that can be kind to people that are hard to that build relationships with people that you shouldn't be. The only way is if you build that on the foundation of the love of God in your own life. And maybe this morning, like in this whole series, if there was one division that could be healed for you, it could be. And you, maybe you might even consider yourself a believer in God for some time now. But if you're honest, there is, some, there is still division with you and God. Or maybe you've never, maybe you've never come to God. Maybe you've never come to what we would say is to, to start a relationship with God, to receive God as your Savior to receive forgiveness, to be restored um, into new life, to be born again, as it were. That right there is the, is the foundation to be un, undivided, to be united, to heal division within the kingdom and outside of it. Only Jesus unites. Colossians 1 says this, For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Jesus and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, all things on earth and in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Now, like, it might be an unfamiliar thing for me to talk about blood on the cross. Like, what, what, do you, what am I going on about there? Um, look, it's, it's the, at the core of the Christian faith is that the cross, that Jesus came he died on the cross. Why did he die? Uh, for the sin of us and for the whole world. But the story didn't end that. He rose from the dead. It sounds like a crazy claim. And yes, it is a crazy claim. But it's true. It's true. And it's the only way to have new life, to have forgiveness, to be restored, and to create a foundation in your life and your family to go and heal the world. It's the only thing that will do it. If you go without that message, you might as well just slap bumper stickers. So let me, let me close up this morning with that, with that thought. And even if I, I want to go back to those three points because I think there are practical things we can take away from this. Making it personal, make every effort to build relationships, not create enemies. To be kind rather than finding reasons to argue on ways to be kind. And to remember that Jesus heals division, not only in us, but in the whole world. And if you want a, a passage of Scripture to think about this week, if you're kind of taking notes, I mean, Colossians 1. Read Colossians 1 a few times. Wonderful Scripture. And perhaps even the story in Luke 7, 
I encourage you through the week, if you have something like quiet time, perhaps in the mornings, or you like to um, spend time reading the Bible, perhaps reading the Bible is new to you as well. Um, Colossians 1, it's, it's a perfect, beautiful story about this, um, a teaching about this, and, uh, and also that story. There's so much more to it than I even got to this morning. But I, um, I'd like to invite you to stand to your feet this morning. I'm about to close the service, uh, and I'd love to, to pray for you. Uh, I'd love to pray um, for all of us as the church. Uh, and if if you yourself this morning, um, you know, feel that you, you want to make a decision about this, please, um, we'd love to see you in the, the Connect Lounge after the service. If it's something that you're like, you know, I, I want in on this. Perhaps you're watching online and you want to, um, you want to know more as well. Please reach out, make contact with us. We'd love to help you on this journey. Um, and But for all of us, using these ways to bridge divides, to bring healing. Um, I'd love to pray with you and for you uh, about that as we close the service this morning. So God, we take this moment to look to you, our healer, the one who heals all our divides, and our Savior, the one who saves us, and our example of what it is to make it personal, to build relationships, to be kind, to be loving, to be caring as you are toward us and to know that you truly unite and heal us. I pray, God, that this church, Suncoast Church, the Impact Church Canberra, God, that we would be known as churches of unity that center around who you are, God, around the love that we see at the cross. Each of us would be, uh, would be tools of healing in our worlds as we go uh, into this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we give a clap to the Lord this morning and appreciate God? Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you are truly blessed by what you heard. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au.